This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, March the 31st, 2023. And i got to say something. I said this to my best friend yesterday by text message and one of my other best friends uh, the day before. March has been the longest freaking month in the history of mankind. March 2023 Longest month ever. I don't care how many other months have 31 days. I don't understand it. It's just the longest month ever, and I'm glad this is the last day of it. We will ring it out together on a Friday with an expert counsel Q&A show for March the 31st, 2023. Goodbye, March. Hello, April. Maybe it'll warm up a little bit. Anyway, what do we got for you today? Well... Great stuff, as always, from the team at the Ron Paul Liberty Report with the Liberty Highlights from the week. Dr. Paul will talk about how fighting the enemy of the day is really just a way to take America's freedoms away. Expanding on that, Dan McAdams will talk about how the Restrict Act is the Patriot Act on steroids. And I agree. Whatever you've heard about the Restrict Act, it's probably worse than what you've heard. That, that's the truth about it. It is a huge, a huge, I mean a massive incursion on the rights of Americans. And to listen to Republicans who just legitimately bitched for three years about censorship approve mass censorship of websites, applications, and software by the executive branch, because this is the legislative branch giving up its right to do this and handing it to the executive branch. And the word any, any and all, that phrase is used way too many times for anything giving power to government, and it will have no legislative oversight if it passes. It's awful. Chris Rossini will talk about how it is now time to separate the bank from the state. We separated church and state at the founding of this country. Maybe it would be a good idea to separate the bank and state now to keep the country existing. C.J. Kilmer has officially joined the expert panel. He will talk about one of the stories of the first, one of the first paper currency inflationary collapses. Lots to learn. It applies a lot to what's going on right now. Nick Ferguson will talk about dealing with a dam that has a, tree, a dam wall with a tree growing in it. Well, don't plant the tree, but it's, I didn't do it. Bought the property. Tree's already there. What do I do now? Sean Mills talks about using something called a grid interactive inverter. For backup power with batteries and a generator, this is a great idea, and it would be something you could easily later add solar to, but the question involves doing it on a new build and not doing solar. I like this one a lot. Uh, Ben Falk will talk about planting in or near septic leach fields. This is a question I have taken over and over and over and over and over again. But in the show 15 15 years, bet I've answered this question at least twice a year. Over 15 years, so 30 times. So I figure I'll let somebody else do it for a change. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about lupus and what can be done to deal with it. And a condition a lot of people get in where they just listen to anything a doctor says as long as that doctor doesn't ask them to change their lifestyle. Even if their life is miserable, as long as they can continue to live their lifestyle, 
They just listen and just swallow it down like the tripe that it is. Speaking of swallowing things, not quite tripe, but what about liver? I've got another new member of the expert panel for you, Josh, the renegade butcher. More info coming about Renegade Butcher as well. Got a discount squared away for you guys in the MSB with Renegade Butcher. But Josh is going to talk about using liver in some creative ways. I think Josh will make a great addition to the Expert Council. Uh, I have been auditioning folks for Expert Council segments lately. Uh, not everybody makes it. That's, that's part of it being something that's really good. But I think if we're not occasionally adding and calling, we're not continuing to grow. So we're going to continue to add and... Uh, some people might get cold from piking a little bit too much, just saying. Um, and then I have for you my anchor segment today. I'm going to go back to something I used to do a lot. I'm going to start doing this probably Fridays for a while now. A quote of the day. I, I like expanding on quotes of the day. Our Buckminster Fuller once said, We are called to be architects of the future, not its victims. And with everything that's going on right now, technology advancements with AI... The government's screwing up the currency even worse than it already is. Bank failures, trying to provoke World War Freaking Three. I mean, it's just a, it's just a mess. Maybe it's time that we start acting like what we're supposed to be architects of the future. And I'm going to come at this. You know, maybe we're not architects of everybody's future, but we damn sure need to be architects of our own futures. That's what we're going to do today. With that, let's go ahead and hear from Ron Paul. Uh, Nan McAdams and Chris Rossini in that order with the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights of the Week. The way it works, uh, and you've already mentioned part of what's going on, uh, that uh, you have to have an enemy and you have to scare the people and uh, then uh, somebody has to come and do something for you and they're going to protect you from from this enemy. Uh, Whether it was the Patriot Act or whether it was to protect us against COVID or whatever. Had to have the enemy, had to have scare people and you had to to rely on lies and you had to uh, get people who ordinarily tell the truth, start telling lies and cause all this mess. But the one theme that usually really wins over and I hear it on the radio all the time and they don't think of it even in a, any way a controversial issue because in a way the sentiment is a little controversial because all of a sudden the government comes forth and they scare the living wits out of everybody and the statement is what we want to do is your government and our job of the government is to make you safe yeah. and uh, when you stop and think about that that motive sounds wonderful because we all want to be safe yeah. we just happen to think the government is not a very good yeah. entity for making us safe uh, it's easy to buy into this whole enemy thing we don't have to have enemies across the world we can take care of ourselves we can be careful and cautious individually but the government is not going to protect us from the enemies that it designates. <laughs> it's doing that for a reason, and that's to manipulate us to its own benefit and power. You know, you know, there's a kind of a pathology, I think, kind of a mental illness in America that we feel like we can't survive without an official enemy. You know, and the enemy of the day is China. We have to hate China. Well, there's a social media that I guess is Chinese-owned, TikTok. It's very, very popular with young people. They <laughs> upload videos of themselves. Well, the U.S. government and the China hawks have identified it as a tool of Chinese intelligence to spy on these kids making these videos. And, of course, that makes the NSA jealous because that's their job, to spy on us making videos. So, of course, you create this problem and then you exploit it to take away our liberties, just like, as you say, with the Patriot Act. Of course, we were attacked on 9-11. 
there should have been a response. But what was the response? It was to restrict our liberties, not to restrict the terrorist liberties. And we found that out, of course, by, by uh, 2013 when Ed Snowden let us know that they were spying on us. But this, this bill came to my attention <coughs> yesterday. And, I immediately shared it with you because it brought back a lot of bad memories of the Patriot Act. And thankfully, our friend Jordan Schachtel, who's done some great work, and let's put this up. He's got a great substack called The Dossier, which we definitely recommend. And he's written about it today. He said, the Patriot Act on steroids. The D.C. Uniparty wants to use anti-TikTok legislation as a Trojan horse for censorship and surveillance. And so, again, they use this manufactured crisis that the Chinese are going to spy on us through TikTok and use it to not just get rid of TikTok. The Restrict Act is for everything. And here's a great little clip that was in, embedded in Jordan's piece, and it's Ian Crossland, who's on TimCast. This bill that's been introduced into the Senate, it's called the Restrict Act, is so dangerous because there really isn't much of a difference in these companies. If you start generally targeting social media companies for doing or for people doing things you don't like on those networks, it gives you carte blanche to just start ending networks, ending TikTok, ending Twitter. We're banning Twitter. We're banning YouTube because somebody on YouTube said that the election was fake. This is like the Patriot Act for technology, basically. And we have this fractional reserve system. And I like to use an analogy when I try to explain this. Let's say you have a lamp or a chair you know, from a great-grandmother that you want to put into storage. And you, you, know, you take your lamp there, and the guy says, okay, I owe you one lamp. And you know, I think, there's a, owe me? This is not a loan. I'm not loaning you this lamp. This is my great-grandmother's lamp. I want to store it here. It's mine. It better not move from here. And I'm going to pay you a storage fee. Well... Now let's think about banking and how people think about banking. They think that when they get their paycheck, that they're going to store their money in the bank. Well, the bank says, okay, Mr. Rossini, I uh, will take this money, and now I owe you X amount of money. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you don't owe me. I am not loaning you. I am storing this here, and if I want to come get it, I'm going to come get it. Well, that's not how it works. They loan it out. And they anticipate that I'm not going to come back and take it all. But as Dr. Paul said, this is a fraudulent system. We're not making loans, even though, you know, that's what's essentially happening. They owe us the money. And that's just not right. But you'll have some people say, oh, no, this is how banking is supposed to be. This is what makes everybody rich. And then you'll have other people on the other extreme will say, well, get rid of all banks altogether. They're, they're all bad. And neither one are correct. Uh, banking is a legitimate and a very important service, and they could legitimately make money. Uh, one, by charging storage fees. If I take my paycheck and put it in a bank, they can charge me a fee for storing the money, and I, I could go pay my bills, I could do what I, I want, but that money doesn't move. That's my money that's being stored, and they're earning money for providing the service of storing it, so I don't have to put it you know, uh, under my mattress. They could also uh, legitimately lend by if I put aside some of my paycheck that I cannot touch, that the bank can then lend, the bank will give me an interest you know, payment for it, and then they will charge interest to the lender. And the difference, the bank is going to make us profit. So, and no counterfeiting occurs here. No booms and bust cycles. This is legitimate banking. So a quick little addition to all of that. Let's just take the fighting the enemy of the day from uh, Dr. Paul and the stuff on the Restrict Act from Dan is a single thing on my response. So here's the deal with this. There, there, the word TikTok isn't even in the Restrict Act. 
I couldn't find it when I scanned the bill. I didn't read every segment of it, so maybe. But it doesn't say nothing about TikTok. It empowers the government at the executive level. So the, the Brandon or his designated appointed anybody to just simply put something on a list and say you can't see it. Now, it's one thing if you say TikTok's not going to be served in the United States, all right? Well, some people are going to want to look at TikTok, so they're going to use a VPN. Okay, if you do that under this law, you could go to prison. You, not TikTok. You could go to prison because you used a VPN to look at something they didn't want you to look at. Well, But here's the thing. Like I said, this is not like... If this was the banned TikTok Act, then we could discuss the merits of whether or not TikTok should exist in the United States. But that's not what it is. It's giving a new power to the executive branch without legislative oversight, and it's incredibly dangerous. Because it's any website or software that is aiding or run by a foreign adversary is the way it's described. So what's a foreign adversary? Well, right now, I'm a freaking tool of Putin, according to half the country. Because I dare disagree with the mainstream narrative of an open checkbook to Zelensky forever with no clear objective as to what the hell's actually going on and no oversight of the money once it gets there at all. So I'm a tool of Putin. So would that mean the Survival Podcast is a website to be banned because it's aiding a foreign adversary? If the right bureaucrat says so, yes. And there's nothing at all in this act that would prevent them from doing just that. And so don't think it's about self-preservation either because I think I'm pretty low level. I don't think that's a, a risk to me. I don't want this to happen to anybody. And I'm not talking about just people getting banned. Remember, when it comes to freedom of speech, there's two sides to it. There is your right to speak, but there's also the right of the person who chooses to to hear what you have to say. And if you interfere with it, you're interfering with both sides' rights. So I promise you, if, if, if the act was the, the canceled TikTok act, and it only affected TikTok... I would still oppose it because I don't believe you have a right to tell people what they can and can't see or hear. Okay, Some of the things that have been done recently, a lot of government agencies have banned TikTok on employee devices. I'm okay with that. You work for the government, you follow the government's rules, and I don't think you need to be looking at TikTok nurses dancing or whatever other propaganda there is, kids eating Tide Pods, whatever. While you're supposed to be freaking working anyway. I don't care what employer bans of what you can see on what device they pay for. That's fine. I would object to it. But it wouldn't be anywhere near as dangerous. And this is what they do. Do you think we should buy t ban TikTok? Yeah. Okay, well then we're going to ban TikTok Act. The Restrict Act is not about TikTok. It's about an increase of governmental power in a place that has no business having any power at all. Ugh. As far as separating bank and state, I thought it was kind of interesting. Chris's view of what a bank is supposed to be for. You're supposed to store my money for me in a safe place so that I know my money's safer than if I kept it in a box in my house. And then, you know, maybe I would pay you some amount of money to make it safe. Well, there's the other side of what the bank does, and that is make the money spendable electronically. Because a check is a method of electronic payment, whether you realize it or not. Right, it, It's you issuing a promissory note against an account that you have with a bank. Think of it that way. So those are the two things that a bank is supposed to do. Keep your money safe and to enable payments right? from, the, from that side, from a depositor side. It also might be a place you obtain a loan. All right. If you really want to separate bank and state, then you need Bitcoin.
Because if I have my Bitcoin stored, I have it's as safe as it would ever. It's far safer. My Bitcoin's far safer than money in the bank. How's that? Okay, so I don't think if somebody breaks in the bank and steals the money, they get my money. I know it's covered. I get that. I don't think I'm at a huge risk of some bad actor taking my money out of the bank account. But I am at substantial risk. The government may just decide they're tired of what I have to say and lock my bank account. Maybe maybe restrict my website with the Restrict Act at the same time. Right? My money is not secure in the bank from my own government. It's not secure from the financial institution itself. It's not secure it from back-end things like Operation Choke Point. And my payments that go through you know, things like Stripe and uh, PayPal, etc., that's not necessarily secure either. Now, once I have the money, I can do whatever I want with it to make it secure. But what would happen you know, after 15 years of killing myself to build up what I have if PayPal or Stripe just turned, or they both did? You say, well, you can use a different payments process. Sure, but what about all the people that are on renewals? How much, how much would it cost me if I was cut off like that? So even that. So the place that I can store my money at no cost, where it's absolutely secure, but I can, I can make payments with it, and I can receive into it, that no one can touch is Bitcoin. You can talk day and night about gold and silver and a proper banking system, and, all, and you can't do it without a third party. You have to trust, and if you think you can trust the banks, you ain't been paying attention. And I don't care if you separate the banks from the government. It doesn't mean that you can trust the banks. You still can't. If you want trustless banking, you want Bitcoin. <laughs> That's all i got to say on it this week. We didn't have a Bitcoin breakout, so I worked it into the Expert Council show. Next up, now we're talking about money. Let's talk about historical collapse of paper currency. C.J. Kilmer, Professor C.J. of the Dangerous History Podcast. Howdy, this is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this segment, I wanted to talk a little bit about currency collapses historically and what we might hypothesize about the near future for the U.S. and the world. So first I wanted to tell you the story of the first paper money inflation instance in the Western world, which actually took place in, of all places, colonial Massachusetts. Now the Chinese had conducted the first rollouts or experiments of paper currency centuries earlier. And every time the Chinese experimented with paper currency, Sooner or later, it would end in significant inflation, and usually, in a relatively short amount of time, the experiment would be halted. But British North American colonists would not have been familiar with the Chinese experiences of inflationary paper money earlier. So in Massachusetts, what happened was, in the late 17th century, so late decades of the 1600s, Massachusetts had evolved almost like a tradition where every year they would launch raids against French Canada, and usually they were quite successful in getting a lot of plunder and loot, and they would come home from their raids with enough loot to pay the soldiers who participated and even to profit above that, and this helped to sort of create a strong basis for their economy. But eventually the French got wise to this, started to notice the pattern, and in 1690 they fought the Massachusetts invaders off successfully, and so you had a bunch of disgruntled soldiers returning home with no loot. But they demanded, because they had still gone out there and, you know, borne the risks of doing this, that the colonial government still had to pay them for going on the expedition anyway. And so in order to head off a mutiny, 
the colonial government printed 7,000 pounds worth of paper money. Now, this being a new thing in the Western world, the colonial government, in order to make recipients feel confident in the value of the notes, promised that A, the notes would, when the government could afford it, be redeemable eventually in gold or silver. Although they didn't specify an exact time frame, and B, they promised that no further issues of paper money would take place. This would just be a one time thing. Now, how did they do in keeping those two promises? Well, regarding promise A, 40 years later, the note still could not be redeemed for specie. And with promise B, well, it took literally two months until they were running the printing presses again and printing another 40,000 pounds of paper money. And they,、um, you know, Decided that this would be a very super easy, painless way to pay off all of the colonial government's debt. Naturally, this had a massive inflationary effect, and within one year of that second round of printing, the notes had lost 40% of their purchasing power. So much so that in 1692, the colonial government felt obligated to try and backstop this inflation, and they passed a decree saying that the paper notes. Must be accepted compulsorily as legal tender with specie at par, meaning a one pound paper note had to be accepted as equal in value to a pound silver coin, even though the paper note was not backed by any silver, really. So this caused something called Gresham's Law to kick in, an economic phenomenon that's often summarized by the phrase, bad money tends to drive good money out of circulation. So, in other words, If sellers are forced by law to accept these paper notes that everybody knows are not worth as much as their face value in hard currency, but you're forced to accept those as face value, well, then what are people going to do? If they acquire any silver pound coinage, they're going to hang on to that because they understand that despite what the law says, that has real stable value. This arrangement, of course, ended up causing very high inflation that messed up the Massachusetts economy for years. And then, what did neighboring、uh, colonial governments do? Well, they did what governments often do, which is to copy the worst things being done by their neighbors. And both Rhode Island and Connecticut were soon printing paper notes. And wouldn't you know it, economic laws are the same regardless of geography or the name of a government. And sure enough, Connecticut and Rhode Island also experienced high inflation. And it wasn't until starting in the 1750s that these colonies stopped printing money. And stopped requiring existing paper money to be accepted at face value at par with hard currency. And it's interesting because not all three of the colonies went back to hard currency you know, at the same time. And so Massachusetts was actually the first one to go back to a hard currency standard and start weaning itself off of paper money. And so its economy recovered first. And an interesting thing is that Massachusetts ended up. Benefiting substantially by being the first in the region to go back to hard money because when they did that, a lot of the commerce that had been going to Rhode Island started to be diverted up to Massachusetts ports, primarily Boston. And so commerce tends to go where the economic conditions are the best. And if you know you're more likely to be paid with hard money in Massachusetts, you're more likely to want to do business there. As opposed to like Newport, Rhode Island, or something like that. So, Gresham's Law is still a thing, and the phenomenon that commerce tends to go where economic conditions are the best is still a thing. And so, we are in uncharted waters now as far as 
no government currently issues anything like a genuine hard currency that's backed by a commodity. So in previous historical bouts of inflation, typically there would be, you know, neighboring states and empires that were not pursuing inflationary monetary policies. And so if one of them did do that, then the business would tend to flow to those that stayed on a hard money standard. And, you know, it's kind of predictable what would happen. But we've never been in a situation like we have been since World War II, and particularly since the Bretton Woods system ended as a backstop for the U.S. dollar in the 1970s, where essentially all of the world's currencies are unbacked by anything really tangible at a particular ratio. That said, it's certainly possible that some states will, in the relatively near future, begin to, as the dollar potentially collapses and likely loses its spot as the reserve currency around the world, and many other current unbacked currencies follow suit, it's certainly possible that some states and possibly even entire, you know, like regional trading blocks and alliances and things will opt for some sort of a more stable, perhaps commodity-backed currency. And if they do that in a genuine way, it is likely that they will benefit from more commerce and resources flowing towards those places that have the more stable and strong currencies versus those that don't. Now, how the whole question of digital currencies works in all this, I have no idea because this is even more of a novel phenomenon. The idea of purely digital currency is even more of a novel phenomenon than the fact that as of right now, all of the world's economies are in some form or another of unbacked fiat currency. So, yeah, it's an interesting idea that the states could create their own currency. Now, the states are absolutely prohibited from using anything to back a currency, to coin money in anything other than silver and or gold. And this is a problem because I think a lot of people are under the impression that, let's say, the state of Texas constitutionally could charter the, 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 the public state bank of Texas and issue currency in the state of Texas for use by Texans and basically back it with silver and gold. And no, they could issue the bank of they could create the bank of Texas, but they would have to take deposits and pay out to pay out withdrawals and do everything in silver and gold. I don't think that having a paper currency backed by silver and gold would fall under the constitutional mandate of what states have to do. It was very clear. You have to understand what was being done at the time that that was put in place, the context of the Constitution. And here's what I mean by that. All the paper money of the time was theoretically backed by silver and or gold. All of it. So when, when you make a statement that you can only use silver and gold to coin, and that's what it says, to coin money, that's the actual text of the Constitution, you're, you're clearly creating a prohibition on, now maybe you try it anyway. What would be interesting, actually, though, would be, I'm back to Bitcoin, these states making themselves very Bitcoin-friendly environments. Uh, and I think Texas and Florida are already in a long way moving in that direction. Uh, big time moving in that direction. I don't know how much more you really can do with it because the tax implications of spending Bitcoin are federal. 
So unless you did some sort of state rights freaking jujitsu move where you're saying that business within the state from one state resident to another state resident conducted in the state's officially recognized commodity? Uh I don't know how you say it, right? To, To make it legal, Bitcoin are not taxable at the federal level. The, 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 the income derived from the exchange to basically treat it as a currency within the state, I think you're in very thin ice of that being held up. There's the other option, though. When the shit really hits the fan, people do what they're going to do. They just do it. And there, and there might be a point where things like this just start happening and the federal government's got other problems. Well, you got to stop doing that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get right on that. Goodbye, McFly. Like that. Just saying. It's definitely one of the places we're heading towards. This week, France um, bought liquid natural gas from China. And they used the Chinese yuan as the currency for the exchange. I just told you, I just did a show Monday saying that when you when the, when you start seeing the energy markets trade in things other than US dollars that's that's a real step in that direction of the dollar losing its its reserve currency status this isn't this isn't China and Russia right our two adversaries right right are going to ban russian social media too the russians have social media i don't know if they do anyway uh, this is a nato ally doing business with china in chinese yuan our days of telling everybody how to live in the world are coming to an end. Like it or not, think it's good or not, and I'll tell you, if you're rooting for it, just understand, you will not go through it without your own individual uh, component of suffering. There will be... We, I don't like the way things are, but I will be the first to admit that we all benefit to a degree from it. And adapting, like losing that status will hurt even if long-term things get better than they are now. It will hurt. It will not be a painless transition. Next up, let's hear from Nick Ferguson about dealing with a tree growing in a damn wall. Not a damn wall, a damn wall, like holding back water. Nick, take it away. Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer for Lucas on trees and a damn wall. Sorry for the sparse showing the past month or so, maybe a couple months, I don't know. I'm in the middle of tree shipping season for Rare Plant Store, and to be honest, I'm a little overextended. So, uh, yeah, anybody want to be an apprentice this summer? I'm seriously considering putting up an application form on the website. Um, And in other news, I have... A backlog of probably 20 questions from the audience. Uh, so sorry about that, guys. I'm trying to get through them. As soon as I get these trees shipped out, I'll be able to pump out more answers for y'all. Maybe I just need to get with Jack and do a standalone show to just answer all the questions I have in my list. Anyways, let's get Lucas's question knocked out so I can get to cooking some steaks tonight. Um, this is from Lucas looking for suggestions on what to do with trees growing in a damn wall details. Hey Jack, I've been listening a long time. I've heard several times that you should not plant trees on a damn wall from your expert counsel. Well, last year I moved into a home with a two acre pond that has several trees growing about right at 
or just under the waterline and into the dam. The picture shows one of the smaller ones behind my son, but there is one bigger behind the picture taker with about an 8-inch eight, eight diameter trunk as well. Any suggestions on how to best deal with these? They are past the point of no return. Are they past the point of no return? And should I focus on longevity so they don't die and rot? Should I pollard to extend their life, or is that too risky? I understand you shouldn't plant trees in the dam, but what are the options when they are already there? I appreciate you and the team helping keeping me company during my commutes. Keep up the good work. Um, <clears throat> well, you could pollard them. Uh, you could coppice them. But honestly, at that size, I would probably just take it out. Generally speaking, now, I, I can't speak specifically because really I'd need to see it to give you good, actionable info. Um, but anything under four inches is generally no big deal to take out. An eight-inch tree is probably not a problem either. If you can, I'd use a lever or a tire and a winch or a come-along to pull the tree out completely and then I would probably come back through and try and compact the area you remove the tree from. You're, you're, you're unlikely to have a problem from something that large as it's probably a willow and most of the roots are probably in the top six in inches of soil along the water's edge. It's probably not trying to penetrate into the dam wall. They're generally going to keep their roots where the water is. Uh, it's hard to know for sure, so... You know, I just proceed with the knowledge that you could screw it up, but like I said, it probably isn't too likely to be a problem removing it. Normally, I don't like to rework those margins and rip trees out unless I have a large excavator handy to compact and smooth the water line back out and cover any channels that might have formed. But I'd, I'd be willing to bet good money that you're not going to have a problem at all. So that's the short answer. Really, that's the best I can do without actually being there in person and seeing what you actually have to work with. It looks like the dam is wide and shallow just from the picture, so it doesn't look like there's a whole lot of drop. Most likely, this is a dug pond with just a very small bit of impoundment, so it's probably not that big of a deal. So my guess, it's unlikely that you'd screw the pooch too bad, even if it ended up being a bad decision. I wish I could be more specific, but... This is just kind of one of those situations where I'd actually need to be on site to give you good, actionable advice. But like I said, as a general rule, in my experience, stuff four to six inches is no problem. Eight inches is seldom a problem. It's when you start getting much bigger that things can get dicey. I hope that helps, man, and best of luck with the new property. I know this is probably a really short answer, but... Um, that's pretty much all I've got on that. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. All right. Uh, great stuff from Nick. Next up, Sean Mills. And we're going to be talking about putting battery backup and having the ability to also charge those batteries with a generator. This looks a lot like a solar setup, except there is no solar in it. And guy's doing a new build and wants to know if this would work, and Sean Mills is the man for a question like that. Hey, everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMyHomestead.com, and today I've got a question from the Telegram group. Tim asks, how could I run a house on generators slash batteries slash grid, similar to a solar setup, but no solar? It essentially acts as a whole home UPS and have a generator tied in for backup. 
How easy would this be to put into a new construction? Yeah, Tim, this is definitely doable. Uh, there's a new class of inverters out there right now. They refer to themselves as grid interactive. Uh, these inverters act as a charger for your batteries, but they can charge from the DC side, meaning from solar panels, or from the AC side, meaning from the grid or from a generator. So you could have one of these uh, grid interactive inverters with a subpanel, and the subpanel is fed uh, on the AC side, or I'm sorry, the inverter is fed on the AC side from your main panel. So typically what you have in a house is you've got your main panel, and then you've got a, a specific breaker that feeds a subpanel, and then that subpanel feeds other loads. So essentially what you could do is you would put the inverter in between the main panel and the subpanel. So the main panel would feed into the inverter, the inverter would feed into the subpanel. You could also put a switch on this so that if the grid were down, you would switch the AC input from the main panel over to the generator. And so the generator would then feed simply the subpanel through the inverter as well as to charge the batteries. That's the other functionality um, that the uh, all-in-one inverter provides is all of those different things can be inputs and then it figures out, okay, what are we doing? Are we putting power into the DC batteries or are we putting AC power onto the subpanel? And are we taking that from a generator or from the grid or from the batteries? Uh, so they're pretty smart. Now the problem with them being so smart is they use a lot of wattage just to be on. Uh, their self-consumption is pretty high. And so typically when you're using one of these all-in-one type of inverters, you're using solar because you can actually put in extra panels to compensate for the self-consumption. If I were going to use batteries as a UPS, uh, I would definitely not do it for the whole home. I would identify the circuits that don't ever need to turn off. And to be clear, it's okay for your freezer and your refrigerator to turn off as long as you turn back on before your food gets too warm. But things like metal cold devices, CPAPs, dehumidifiers, etc., uh, those things might be on dedicated circuits run from a subpanel that has an inverter feeding it from batteries with the grid backup. Um, I could also put this system together without using an all-in-one. I would use a very high-efficiency inverter with very low self-consumption, and I would just use a plug-in charger for the batteries. So I'd plug the charger into the wall. That would keep the batteries topped off. The subpanel would typically run just like it's supposed to, and then in the event that the, the power goes out, the transfer switch in the inverter flips over and starts pulling from the batteries, and the circuits don't turn off, and then that plug-in charger could also be run you know, directly from an extension cord to a generator outside to do kind of the same thing. Uh, there also are some new components out there called charge verters. And so what those do is they take the dirty power from your generator and they charge your batteries up, but they do it very, very efficiently. They really clean that power up. So they almost act as an, as an inverter in between the generator and um, the batteries to really, uh, I guess I would say they maximize the charging uh, curve 
for those lithium iron phosphate batteries that everyone wants to be using these days. Uh, so anyways, that's the way to do it. Uh, you can absolutely put one of these all-in-ones in. You could put it in with no solar. You could add solar later. Um, I'm kind of on an off-grid system. I'm pretty much standardizing to these all-in-one units right now, except for cases where there's a limited amount of space for solar or where most of the loads are not going to be very high AC loads. And then I'm actually looking to put things on a DC circuit running straight from the batteries so the inverter can actually be turned off. So, for example, if you're a refrigerator and your lighting in your dorm room or something like that, your tiny home, uh, is all you really needed at night, then you could turn the inverter off, run those things off at DC. Now you don't have that self-consumption, and then the next day when you need the other appliances in the house, you can flip the inverter on. So just something to think about. But, yeah, technology has come a long way. I mean, there are all-in-one inverters right now that you can put six, seven, eight thousand watts of solar in, and that was unheard of as recently as just a couple of years ago. Um, so it's definitely coming a long way. Great question. Uh, keep those questions coming in, guys, and I'll keep getting them answered. So that's really awesome new tech um, that makes a lot of this more feasible. I would say to the person who originally asked the question, though, if you're going to invest in a generator, that's can be a big investment or a, a moderate one. Um, good idea, no matter what. But if you're going to invest in a significant amount of batteries in a solar installation, it's the bigger expense at this point. I would really consider going into a new build where you have financing available. Throw ten grand, a five to ten grand worth of solar on the roof if it makes sense for the aspect and everything else because a, a house payment with that added to it is almost no different in in your monthly cost you know you're talking less than a hundred bucks easy even with current interest rates the the other option though would be make sure that when you do the install it is designed from the very beginning to to be easy to add solar later, that might include even running some wiring or what have you uh, right up to wherever you would mount the panels, maybe keeping it inside the roof deck at that point. No read for a penetration or anything when it's not going to be used. Uh, but, you know, taking it up along the eave, you would, you would bring that wire around or something might be a good idea while the house is in sticks. Just a thought because... That gives you even more independence, and it is the lower cost of a off-grid installation is the panels versus the batteries. The storage is where the money is, especially in 2023. Next up, let's hear from Ben Falk on planning over a septic system, the drain field. Um, he actually did the recording, sent it, like, I really messed up, and I should have also said something else. So I'm just going to play his two uh, segments back-to-back, -back, and that's why there'll be an obvious transition in return. Anyway, and then we'll come back, and we will hear about lupus from Dr. Ken Berry after this one. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, yeah, I think the Internet, about, about as far as giving you an answer about the planting near septic leach fields tanks etc is about what what your average person who knows something about it would say um and that's basically very conflicted mostly in the negative um i think the more someone probably installs these systems 
um, works on them professionally, the more they would be officially saying, no, don't do it. Because roots, roots will clog those, those drain lines. I think eventually, I don't have experience with that, but I have, I have planted around drain fields. Um, but it could take, you know, a long time, 15, 10, 15, 20 plus years. Those fields fail anyway, is my understanding. I'm no leach field expert, by the way. Just lived with them for 20 plus years, planted around them, but I haven't really installed many or renovated any. So I would talk to someone who has, first of all. But um, my sense is, you know, the more you plant on them and the more it's perennial and the closer you are to them, the sooner you'd clog them up by doing that, probably. But um, it would take... It could take a long time if you're not planting tons of perennial stuff right near it, um, is my sense. So, good luck. One more thing that's actually pretty important I would add to that is um, that annual cropping of drain fields is probably a lot less likely to clog it up and may may really never, depending on on a lot of things like what crops and the depth of the drain field and more. and I, I've tried that a bunch. And uh, the thing is, there's so much nitrogen in the system that plants just keep growing, 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 and they don't really mature their fruit. So like squash, for instance, loves high nitrogen, grows out of manure piles and compost piles. But if it just has a continuous supply of high nitrogen, they'll just keep growing and they really will sit there growing, growing, and, and not really harden off and mature. Corn did that for me too. It just kept growing. Same with uh, sunflowers um, and same with amaranth. The squash, actually, some squash eventually did mature. I'm remembering now to the experiment. So squash seems somewhat viable, especially it sounds like you're in a pretty warm area. You have a long season. That helps. But I would try in your locale as to what would um, what would actually mature. But that's one challenge with it. The other thing, which is coming to the fore in just the last few years and to me and and also just in general getting more well known i'm actually updating it in my book right now for the expanded and revised revision new book version which will be out in the next three quarters of a year um which is about pfafs and pfaos the forever chemicals they call them uh the fluorinated compounds those are really nasty they're they're it's a nightmare pretty much for sure that's coming out now and it, it, they've been in use for a long time like 30 40 years and they're they, they're specifically concentrated in in septage probably in leachate too but definitely in septage in the tanks but again probably in the in the fields as well i mean there's a lot of like non-stick stuff in our life whether it's from outerwear or pans coming off of pans or lots of other stuff like um dixie cups apparently and different take out food stuff stuff that gets in the sink in the your water and then it gets into the system you don't need very many of these to to cause you a problem like parts per billion seems to matter with this stuff um just one of so many carcinogens now everywhere in there i mean it's in the rain like a lot of other stuff so it's not like you're gonna avoid this stuff but you could dose yourself a lot more than you would otherwise get if you had these in your leach field and you were growing in them and eating that stuff. Um, 
So knowing the history of your system might be something good to know in this situation. Um, and also these tend to concentrate in, in actually, unfortunately, in forages more than fruits. So something like squash would probably be better than, unfortunately, harvesting grass for like compost, which I've been doing for a long time. I mostly know the history of my leach field on one site. But so that's a real bummer. Oftentimes things concentrate more in the seeds and fruits. But in this situation, they they concentrate less than that. So that's good news um, for certain things and bad news for, for pasture and hay, hay and green manure. Um, that's something for people to know in general anyway is harvesting grass out of this fountain of grass, which is your leach field, uh, could be, and then putting into your compost, then back into your food system, could be giving you a lot of, of PFAS, a lot of carcinogens that way. Super big bummer to learn this in the last few years and, and realize just how meaningful that might be. So that's something else to just add to that, and that's really important context, especially becoming people are gaining awareness of it recently. Um, so, and it's really hard to test for this stuff. It's expensive and not necessarily that reliable and you can contaminate the tests in a lot of ways because they're so sensitive like if you wear outerwear like Gore-Tex and whatever to do the test you can cause a problem or have certain tape around or whatever it is so some more context there for you so yeah what he came back with is pretty much the advice I've always given um don't do perennials just don't don't put perennials at the edge of or on leach fields with one exception, and that would be grasses, because perennial grasses tend to have shallow sod-like root systems. And when I'm saying perennial grasses, I'm not talking about plains grasses. I'm talking about turf grasses that we grow for lawns. And I think this is a good way to think about it. Nobody's septic drain field is bare dirt. Most septic drain fields have really beautiful lush grass over them because they get tons of nitrogen and what have you. So what you would want to plant would be things that have root systems that are similar to grass. Ben was right, too, when he said he thinks they fail eventually. Many of them do. Many of them are very old, though, and don't fail. Uh, my septic leach field here is over 40 years old. It was installed over 40 years ago. It still works fine. We had one point where uh, a tech came out to do some work for us and do some pumping during some flooding and informed us that we needed to redo the leach field. I did not agree with this, and the reason I did not agree with it is when he, he pumped our tanks out, like, as much as he could. And you could just hear water pouring back into the tank from the side of the field. Well, that's because there was so much pressure due to how much standing water was, because we had flooding out there. So if the water's flowing back, it can flow out. So in case anybody ever ends up with this problem, uh, I'll, I'll give you what our solution was for it uh, at the time. Now, understand, there's two tanks in a septic system like I have. So you have a solids and then a liquids tank, right? And so stuff migrates from the solids tank as liquid to the liquid, and then it leaches into the drain field. That's how it works. So we had both of them pumped. Of course, the, the front tank, or the further out tank, uh, that's the water tank, you would call it, or the liquid tank, immediately started filling back up and filled up very quickly. I took a dirty water pump. You know, with an impeller on the bottom of it that's designed to chop up and pump sewage, basically. And rigged it up so that I could attach a garden hose to it. Put a couple garden hoses together, ran it all the way down to my back fence to the woods. Threw that pump in that tank. And plugged it in. 
And whenever it was, you know, full enough to move the float valve up, it turned on and pumped water until it pumped it all the way down. And it kept doing that and it kept doing that. And, you know, I, I kept an eye on it. And one day I opened it up and it was pretty much empty and stayed that way. And the water stopped flowing back in. So I pulled the pump out, put it away after giving it a thorough cleaning. <laughs> and uh, it's worked fine ever since. And that was about five years ago. So that was a multi-thousand dollar job that we didn't have to do that a tech that was supposed to be an expert said we had to do. I know that's not really directly related to Ben's question that he answered, but it is something I thought might be beneficial to people. If it can flow one direction, it can probably flow the other. And people in certain industries have a tendency that techs are on incentive-based compensation. They're basically tax plus salespeople, and they will sometimes tell you things that aren't exactly true, and you need to be aware of that. Uh, and specifically places where this tends to happen a lot, foundation repair, septic systems, HVAC, so heating and air conditioning. These are places where there's a lot, and I'm not, if you're in that profession and you would never do such a thing, don't write me an angry, hateful letter. Uh, but you know there are people in those those spaces that, that that's their primary thing is everything needs to be replaced all the time, especially if it's you know fifteen twenty years old. Oh, you need a new one. Oh, okay, sure, you pay for it. <laughs> Just be careful with stuff like that. Uh, next up, um, got a question for Dr. Ken Berry about lupus, and it's actually a deeper question because it has to do with you know people we care about who may have medical issues, but they'll also Blindly listening to doctors, even though they know that the rest of the, the authorities are bullshit, and it is because they have a, a certain comfort in their life, even if they're miserable, and they don't want to give it up. Hello, Jack Spearco and the TSP crew. I've got a question today from John. Uh, is lupus real? My mother-in-law just moved in with us because she can no longer take care of herself. Severe physical decline and mental fog. I can't even keep up with all of her medications. Her doctor told her she is borderline lupus and has low vitamin D. She is using this all as an excuse and so far has refused to take action. Strangely, she doesn't trust banks, government, or large companies, but will blindly follow everything her doctor tells her as long as it doesn't require her to change her lifestyle. Um, sorry about this, John. You're kind of stuck in a dilemma right now. Uh, several questions here that we need to address. First of all, why do people who are smart enough not to trust big government, big companies, big banks, why do they still blindly believe what their doctor tells them and, and continue to take a, a handful or two handfuls of medications in this case? Uh, I think this is a great question that speaks to human nature. And I think it's very often the personal interaction with this doctor. Uh, big corporations and big banks, big pharma, big food, they're faceless corporations that makes it much easier to hate and distrust them. But her doctor, she, she knows him. She sees him. She shakes hands with him. Uh, and this, this will tend to strengthen an interpersonal relationship. And most elderly people look up to doctors as almost demigods that they obviously went to school for a long time. They've been trusted by the community for decades in many cases. And this makes it much easier for especially elderly people who are starting to have to face their mortality to know, oh, there's hope in this magic pill or this magic injection or this magical infusion. This could prolong my life because science, and you can't fault elderly people for believing this. Uh, they were raised in a time when you trusted 
the professionals in your community. Now, back to John's mother-in-law. It's quite possible that the, the double handful of medication that she has to take every day is directly related to and causing her physical decline and mental fog. I'd have to know the full medication list and her full medication uh, medical history to know that, but this is very, very common. Polypharmacy is very dangerous in older people. Uh, So, yes, it's quite possible that some of her medications are actually contributing to the symptoms that she is blaming on lupus. Also, low vitamin D, depending on how low, can mimic the symptoms of dementia and physical debilitation very, very closely. It's almost impossible to know what's being caused by the low vitamin D and what's being caused by the actual condition she might or might not have. Now, lupus, uh, there are several lab tests that can uh, show that it's in, it's likely that a person has lupus, but currently there's no definitive diagnostic test for lupus. Doctors go on a combination of symptoms plus lab findings to make this diagnosis. Now, is it possible that your mother-in-law does not have lupus? Yes, it's possible. It's pro- it's not very probable if she has a, a decent doctor. She probably does have lupus. But the thing that she needs to understand, and it it's not your job, John, to try to argue with your mother-in-law. But the thing she needs to understand, however that understanding comes about, is that lupus symptoms can be quite severe, but you can also improve them with dietary changes and with lifestyle changes. Uh, She immediately needs to get her vitamin D level back up between 50 and 100. That's very important for her overall health, but also will improve these symptoms as well. If you could get her out in the morning sunlight every morning for 10 minutes, if you could uh, somehow go over all of her medications, because I guarantee you that somewhere between 30 and 70% of those medications are completely unnecessary and are causing her to have worse symptoms. Uh, Now, if you want to ask me more detailed questions about this, John, you can become a member of our private group. We've got over 5,200 people in there now. Uh, you just go to drberry.com slash community, and for five bucks a month, you can have access to live Q&As, and you can even direct message me your questions if we don't address them on a live. Hope this helps. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you next time. So just listening to this and thinking about what lupus is, it reminded me of a book that I wrote, read a long time ago, and I've talked about it on the air. And it's written by a guy who is not a doctor or a scientist, and he's kind of an extreme guy. But he makes a lot of really great points, and it's about vitamin D. It, the book was called The Miraculous Results of Extremely High Dose of the Sunshine Hormone, D3. The author is named Jeff T. Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S. And what this actually made me think of is one of the remarks I read in this book, and I thought... Whether or not this guy's right about everything in the book is irrelevant. I'm, li- I'm, I'm reading a book written by an incredibly smart person who is very good at making complex things very simple. And this is what he said about, and he was talking about chronic diseases. Understand that. So this isn't you stepped on a nail and you got tetanus, right? This is you have this ongoing disease, right? This, this chronic ongoing disease. He said there's really only two of them. Because if you, you look at something like high blood pressure, this is a symptom of a problem. It's not a disease in of itself. When you have something like a lupus or anything that's like a chronic fatigue syndrome or any of this stuff, 
that you either have an immune system that's overactive, right, or you have one that's underactive, and that's it. You either have autoimmune, where your immune system's attacking your body, and all the drugs that are given are to suppress your immunity, which makes you more susceptible to other illnesses and infections, right? Or you have an immune system that is not active enough, and it needs to be boosted. And of course, he, you know, he said one of the biggest ways you can make sure that you boost your immune system is to have adequate vitamin D levels. And I, I think a lot of these these immunoconditions, right, that's what we need to look at is what is the deficiency causing the body to attack itself? Because I've said this forever. Our biology is not any different than a human being that walked around 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, or 50,000 years ago. That human being had a brain as big as yours, had the same biochemistry as you, if they had an uh, illness, a disease, an injury, and they were, they were beamed like Star Trek through time and put on the table of a surgeon in a modern hospital, that doctor wouldn't have to know anything beyond basic medical information about that person to operate on them. It's not like, oh, this is a new species or something. It's the same person. And hum human beings did not walk around with chronic autoimmune diseases in high percentage numbers for the vast majority of the time we were on the planet. You can, you can read you know, early records of, of, of physicians and things like that in the past, and there were problems, but there was not, like, this didn't exist. And a lot of allergies, you know, maybe they existed, but they didn't exist in, like, every third person's allergic to a freaking peanut now, right? Like, when I was a kid, there was, like, one kid... One kid had a peanut allergy in the whole freaking school. You know, hundreds and hundreds of kids. One kid has a peanut allergy. Today, every other kid has a peanut allergy. And sometimes I wonder how many of them do and how many are just nervous, nilly parents that don't know. The kid's never had a peanut because they're convinced they're, you know, Johnny has one. Um, but we clearly have gone wrong in the last hundred years. The choices we've made about the food we're eating, we've gone wrong. And what happened... And the way this happened, one is yeah, money driven and all. But here, like, here's the tactical way this this goes down. In World War One, this is where we started changing the way we thought about nutrition in the United States. We didn't really even have a clue how many malnourished people we had. So tons of these young men were called up to the World War One draft. They came in, and the doctors looked at them and said, "No, this person can't go to freaking Europe and fight in a war in a trench. We'll die before he ever gets there. This guy's nutrient deficient. He's not. He's not healthy." He's underweight. And it was because as we began to move more and more people into the cities and out of the farms, right, both sides suffered from food supply availability. And it was about that time that we started introducing a lot of the technologies that we have today that stabilized food and made it shippable all over the place. When we did that, we commoditized our food. And in the beginning, you know, if you watch the, 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 the food that built America, you can kind of see this, especially in the first and second season where they do the older stuff. There was some competition, but whoever got there first, there's one or two giant companies owned everything. But once that happened, then people started competing. And the only way you could compete in that market was to do something with your food that made it more attractive than others. So it went, the, the original way that food was sold wasn't it tastes really good. It's, you can eat it and it won't kill you. It's safe to eat it. People did not trust it. But then, hey, 
we add a little sugar to this. Well, I don't know. I, my mom used to make that. She never. But I put some sugar in it. You taste it. You tell. Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden, all of these chemicals, all of these processing things, and this life of living out of freezer tray food and freaking you know canned food and box food became a way of life. And so, is lupus real? Yes. You know, I, I can see that this guy's probably frustrated with his mother-in-law. I get it. But yeah, lupus is real. But what percentage of people today have lupus versus what percentage of people would have had lupus if we had a good diagnosis for it a thousand years ago? My guess is very, very few people. Very few. Not none. Very few. There is a genetic component here. But, you know, there's genetics and epigenetics. So epigenetic means above genetics, so it's not just genetics. It can have genetic components. So you can have a person with a genetic predisposition to acquire lupus, but it's the epigenetic factor that causes it to kick in of, let's say, poor diet and low solar exposure. Just some thoughts on that one. Next up, new member of the expert council, Josh, the renegade butcher with uses for liver. Hey there, TSP community. This is Josh the Renegade Butcher coming to you really quick. I had a little tip that came out the other day on one of my shows, and I thought this would make a really good segment to throw into the expert council for y'all. Um, I get asked all the time, how do you use some of these different offal-type meats, these uh, organ meats, especially liver? Because liver is such a powerhouse in the nutrition department. How do you eat it, though, if you don't like it? So many people have had bad liver and onions in the past, uh, or the texture just throws them off, that it's just not palatable. And myself, I'm not a big fan of just eating liver. Uh, it's extremely healthy, especially if you suffer from things like anemia. Uh, it's been a part of the human diet for the longest time. But you can use it in other ways. Um, it's definitely not a keto-type thing, but uh, in uh, Louisiana and southeast Texas, where I'm at right now, boudin is a very, very popular way to use uh, use liver. I love that too. It's very rice-based, and uh, I'm not going to recommend that for somebody who's trying to eat more of a keto diet. I know that's not for y'all, though, but if you haven't heard of that, check it out. It's, uh, it's not for everybody, but it is good Cajun food. Uh, it's almost kind of like a ricey jambalaya in, in a, a sausage casing. So a little bit different, pretty regional, but you can even find them in gas stations down here. And that can use all different kinds of livers, chicken livers, pork liver, beef liver. I've even made it with venison liver, and it was really good. So, But the number one trick and tip that I wanted to throw out on this is if you do grind your own meat, or if you get your meat ground by a private butcher, or you know the guy doing the work, talk to them. What you want to do is get regular ground beef, ground venison, whatever ground meat that you're you know wanting to use, and have them fine grind it and add 10% by weight liver to it. Regular ground beef with 10% liver by weight, once you cook it up, you may see a little bit of a difference when you look at it in the raw form. You may see some little flecks of liver in it, even with the fine ground. Once you cook it up, it will not taste like liver, it will not smell like liver, and you're actually getting a pretty high amount of liver in your food by doing that. So um, I have uh, customers that ask me to do that all the time. Like, can you grind this up for me really quick? Because I'm trying to get more liver in our diet and my husband won't eat it or my kids won't eat it. And if you don't tell them, they will not know. So try it yourselves. If uh, if you think I'm, I'm full of it and you can taste it and it's not just all in your head, 
feel free to uh, let Jack know that I'm full of baloney. But uh, you won't be disappointed, and I think uh, more people should actually be trying that and uh, utilizing that whole animal and all the nutrition that's in there. Anyways, folks, if you have questions related to meat and things like that, be sure to toss them out there to Jack at the Survival Podcast. Let him know for Josh the Renegade Butcher. Follow my stuff, uh, renegadebutcher.com. You can check out my uh, podcast, seasonings, and all that fun stuff. And uh, we've got a really active community over on Telegram, so if you've got more questions, you can always pop over there. We'll see you guys around. Hope you guys have a wonderful day, and we'll catch you later. So real quick on the liver thing before I go forward. I agree completely on the 10%. 5 to 10% liver and ground meat is a great way to go. Um, I also, whenever I shoot a deer or a wild pig and I'm going to make sausage from grind, I always just grind the liver into it. And it could be a fairly high percentage of liver in the sausage uh, because whatever there is, that's what happens, right? So, you know, a smaller pig still has a pretty big liver. And uh, so you might not have that much that comes off that animal to go to grind. So anyway, uh, the other thing, though, I wanted to mention, I've forgotten about this. And this is one of these projects that Jack has in his brain that I need to do. I would love to make keto boudin or a keto thing that is boudin-like. I haven't done it yet, but as many of you guys know, I am kind of a sausage guy. I like to make sausage. Feeling no one wants to see how to make make sausage; they just want to eat it. I, I don't know. You've never seen sausage made, then, because there ain't much to it, and it, 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 there's nothing nasty about it. I guess if it starts with the pig going into a commercial slaughterhouse, maybe. But when it comes to making sausage, it's ground meat shoved in a tube. Well, as Josh mentioned, the whole boudin thing is rice and liver. And this goes back to being kind of, you know, Cajun soul food, slave food, etc. In that liver was something that was commonly thrown away. And in this case, usually boudin is made with pork liver. And then you're in Louisiana, so there's rice everywhere. So how do you make the non-palatable liver palatable? You turn it into a sausage. Well, what can we replace the rice with? I have two candidates, and I think both of them would be good. I don't know which one would be better. The first one is riced cauliflower, which is a go-to for us in a lot of dishes that we eat. We make a really amazing cream sauce, um, garlic cream sauce, that, that you put that on on uh, rice cauliflower, and you just go to town on it, man. And the, the big thing with rice cauliflower, and you would have to do this for the sausage. You need to cook it before it goes into the sausage. You have to cook the cauliflower stink out of it is the way I, I phrase it. So I think that would be one. The other option I have, and it would be a, a fairly high protein uh, uh, option, is uh, uh, hemp holes. Not holes. Uh, hemp, hemp seeds. So hold hemp seeds. So you can buy hemp seed, edible hemp seed, that's, that's basically got no hole on it. It's been deholed. Uh, and they look like little... They kind of look like it. Kind of looks like couscous, and it kind of tastes like couscous, and it's very low. And so my thought was, either of those products, there's a lot of rice and boudin, is probably still going to be somewhat high in carbs if you ate a big portion. If you did the ratio of a boudin, so what I was thinking is something that's more along the lines of like your meat mixture is like. 60% liver and 40% ground pork. And then to that, we're going to add a reasonable amount of this filler to get that boudin-like experience. Because if you open boudin, it's almost all rice is how it seems. So maybe you're looking at more of like a 30% to the total 
in your adjunct of of rice or uh, cauliflower rice or hemp holes. Why would you go through all that trouble? You eat some boudin, and I think you'll figure out why. Uh, it's something I need to play with, and I just haven't had time to do it yet, but it's one of those projects that hopefully one day will happen. All right, with that, let's go ahead and talk about my segment today real quick. And I just want to give you some inspiration on a Friday afternoon to, to go out and make this weekend awesome. Right to make this like a great weekend for your life, and when it's over, to not have it be like, oh, that was a great weekend. Too bad it's over. To be like, the things that happened this weekend are going to make my life better forever, and to start thinking that way. And again, this comes from a quote by Buckminster Fuller. He said, "We are called to be architects of the future, not its victims." The, I think I've actually talked about this quote on the show before sometime in the past. It's a great one, and I think there's a lot of ways to interpret that. And one would be, you know, as Buckminster Fuller was an incredible inventor, a technologist, and, you know, you could take that quote as calling out to other people like him to be creative and build great things for the future that all of us can use. But I think in today's world, with all the things that are going wrong, Digital currencies, uh, scamdemics used to lock people down, Uh, trying to provoke a war with a nuclear power. A freaking dementia patient who's also a complete and total asshole, by the way, and probably a, a, a child perv running the country, right? Like, this is a, in some ways you look at this and you think, this is a, a shitty time, to be alive, and it's really a shitty time if you're like 25 and you haven't built your life during what people think was the easy times of the 90s and early 2000s or whatever, as though it was easy. That you weren't there, you don't know. Trust me, it wasn't as easy as you think. But there are challenges in the world today, and it's easy to become like the mother-in-law from Ken Berry's segment. Uh, screw it. I'm just going to comfort myself and stay in the house. And I don't want to give up any of the things that make me a little bit more comfortable. Well, you're not the architect of your future. So I want you to take this quote. We are called to be the architects of the future, not its victims, and change it a little bit. I am called to be the architect of my future, not a victim of my inaction. Because I talk to people all the time, and I can tell they are not architecting their future. This is what you have to be. If you are going to control your future, we're going to use something like an architect as an analogy. You have to be the architect who designs the house. You have to be the builder that builds the house. You have to be the general contractor that oversees all of the components, the walls going in, the electrical work, the plumbing. You have to be the person that talks to the city and makes sure that everything's to code so somebody doesn't come tear the house down right before it's done. You have to be the, 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 the customer who walks through and does the punch list at the end and makes sure everything's right. And then you've got to go live in the house. And then you've got to maintain the house and you've got to take care of the house. You have to do it all if you're going to be the architect of your future. So you talk to somebody and they say, yeah, I, I just really need to make more money. And you know, someday I will. Well, are you architecting that shit, or are you just, like, saying that shit? Like, so my question to that person would be something like, so what is, the, what is the track toward promotion within your company? How far down that track are you? How reasonable is it that you would be promoted? What are the skills, certifications, et cetera, that you would need to acquire outside of your company 
to make yourself more value in, valuable inside of your company so you'd qualify for those promotions. And if you got that promotion, how much more money would it really be and how much would that really affect your life? And they have no answer to any question. Not, not one of those do they have an answer for. Okay, so you have no idea. You can't possibly be working on it because you don't even know what it is. You haven't even gone to architecture school yet. You haven't done drafting 101 in your life. Because if you got all the answers to that, you may come to a shocking conclusion. And there's so many people, this would be the conclusion they would come to. And I think in their heart they know it, and that's why they don't do the work. I am never really going to get ahead where I am right now. I'm not. So then you ask the same questions about where can I go to get a job where I move up by moving over. And because this is the, this, the people say to me, like, how did you get so much done in your 20s and 30s? Because whenever I wore out what I could gain from working for one place, I went and worked for another. If I wasn't going to be able to make more money or get more skills or get more experience, I went to some place where I could. And then you have to work that too. Okay, so if I were to go out and look for a job right now, what would it be? Do I really want to do that? Or do I want to do something else? If it's something else, what do I need to be able to do that job? It's probably not a four-year degree. Maybe it's a boot camp style tech uh, course. Maybe it is working on some independent projects and learning a new skill set and even going entry level in your first job or lower level in your first job in that field. Maybe even taking a pay cut because I did it. I took a pay cut from $150,000 a year to $40,000 a year when I switched from sales to marketing because I wanted to work with good marketers. I only did it for eight months, and I was right back to making as much money as before, but doing something I was enjoying a hell of a lot more and learning that skill set because I was architecting my future. So when I got to the point where I wanted to do this podcast, I had a background in running companies. I had a background in selling. I had a background in running sales forces. I had a background in marketing. And I had a background in running marketing departments. Because I was architecting my future. Now, I didn't know that the final project, so to say, that I was going to draft was going to be architecting a podcast business. It didn't matter. All that mattered was where I am is no longer where I want to be. Or even if I don't mind it that much, my progression has halted, my growth has stopped, and there is no timeline that makes sense to me that involves it getting any different where I am. So now I have to make a move. Now, that's just one way that we do things like this. There's a lot of different ways. It's not all about career or money. You know, if you have a piece of property and you wish you had a bigger piece of property, you either architect yourself into a bigger piece of property, or you architect your property into providing for you, even though it's not exactly what you wanted. I had a boat one time, a little 14-foot flat-bottom john. I wanted a bigger boat. Didn't really have the money for it at the time. Didn't really make a lot of sense to spend the money on it. I went on a bunch of forums and found out all kinds of mods people did to their john boats, putting in some decking storage and things like that, Mounting a front motor so that your trolling motor was more usable than trolling in the back. And putting in some chairs that were more comfortable and stuff like that. And I, I spent about 500 bucks, and this boat was transformed into like a pseudo bass boat. And when I sold it, I probably got $2,000 more for it than if I had left it the way it was. So I got to use it for a couple of years. And I made fifteen hundred extra dollars, you know, five hundred in materials, and then fifteen hundred, you know, two thousand more in sales. And the people that bought the boat were 
happy about it, right? So that was another example of working with what you have, but actually taking an active role and being able to see where do I want to be. And this is this is the key. You do need to know where you want to go. Like I said, I didn't know I wanted to be a podcaster, but I knew I wanted to do something. So I started working until I found what I was really looking for along the way. But I knew I wanted more. I knew I wanted, what I really wanted was freedom. I didn't want employees anymore. I hated having employees. I didn't want business partners in a direct partnership anymore because I hate that too. Because I want to do things my way and I don't want to argue with somebody about it. Right? So I wanted some sort of solo, solopreneurship and I worked into that through an architecture across life. However, you do need a goal. Right, And then you figure out how to meet the goal as you modify your plan as you go forward. Because I want you to think about this analogy. Every day, there are ships that leave ports all over the world. They head out to, to the open ocean to sea. They travel across the ocean. They arrive at another port. They arrive at that port within hours of when they were expected to. They've, they've already radioed the harbor master there. Uh, they pull into that port, they do business, they drop off or pick up, and then they sail back out, and they go to another port, maybe back to their home port. And again, they they end up there at the exact right time on the right day. And if there's some sort of storm or something, maybe they get delayed a day, but they steer around the storm or they hold up and they wait for the storm to pass, and then they steam through, and they you know update the harbor master, and everything pretty much happens all the time the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Now, the reason that happens is one reason only. The captain on the ship plots the course in advance. They know the trade winds. They know the current flows. They know the speed of their ship. They know what they're carrying, how much weight, how much ballast. They know all those things, and they take that information along, again, like with current weather conditions, times at other ports, like, like how long are you going to have to wait to get into port while they're unloading other ships, and they... They do a calculation, and boom, we're going to go there. Okay, that's how you need to live your life if you want to be an architect of your future rather than a victim of the future. Most people, if they were the captain of this ship, would be like, we're in China, and we need to take a bunch of bullshit to America and drop it off in Seattle. And you just take the ship and point it to the east, right? And then you sail as fast as you can out into the ocean due east, cut the motors off and let inertia take over and say, well, someday we'll be in Seattle. You might end up in Seattle. Odds are not good, and you certainly aren't going to get there on time. Uh, you may very well end up somewhere down in South America's trade currents turn and, and, and drive you south. You may drift around until you run out of food and supplies and die. But what you're not going to do is travel from China to Washington State in a timely manner, and get the mission accomplished, because you didn't chart a course. Now, you have to ask yourself, why the hell do you have to hear this from a redneck hippie duck farmer if the state mandated you spent 13 years in school, K-12, through and no one ever told you that in the, in the government school system? Because it's in their benefit that you don't do this. They only want about 10% of society to think this way. The elite. Okay? They only want a few captains of ships. And what they want is obedient workers, in the words of George Carlin. Right? Um, one of the Rockefellers, I think it was, stated, I don't want 
a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. Right? I want people to shut up and do what they're told on, in a timely manner. I want to be the captain of their ship. And this has become more, not less, true across time. We think because we have better working conditions and unions and overtime paying, that's all, that's all bullshit, right? That's not actually changing whether or not you're in control of your life. So what I would like you to do for me, and it's really for you this, this weekend, is I'd like you to look at your life and pick one thing you can do that will make things better for a long time after you do it. That could be installing your new garden bed. It could be building a greenhouse. That could be setting up the basics of what's going to turn into a business. It could be developing a business plan. It could be starting to learn a second language. I don't care what it is. I just care that it fits your plans for your life and will pay dividends into the future. And it doesn't have to be done by the end of the week. And it just has to have been started with a commitment to continue with it until such time as it is complete, or as complete as it can be for this phase of your life. And yes, this includes things you've already started, but you're not actively still working on. You're, it's a project. When's the last time you touched it? Four weeks ago. No, it's a pile. right? Is it a project or a pile? If you haven't touched it this week, it's a pile, not a project. Right. Go pick the pile up and turn it back into a project. Do that for me this weekend, or as I really say, do that for yourself. With that, we've wrapped up another week of the Survival Podcast. Remember, you can always support this show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com forward slash members. And just go there. And you can sign up. There's lots of different ways to pay. You can pay silver and gold, check by mail. Very few people do that anymore. Some people do. You can pay with Bitcoin. You can pay with a credit or debit card online. You can become a member. It's 50 bucks a year. We have discounts that, you know, using a code one time will cover it, like uh, 9% off Start9 Embassy uh, servers. That, that, would, that would cover easy a year. Uh, butcher Box, $10 a box across a year, that's 120 bucks. Even if you're at every other month box, that's 60 bucks on a $50 membership. You already paid for it. The CBD product vendors we have, we have some fantastic ones. Coffee, uh, seeds, plants, etc. We have so many places you can get discounts. I can't see how anybody doesn't get their money back. I personally end up with several hundred dollars in discounts using my own discount codes uh, every year. And not buying something just because it's a vendor. Like, I need a thing. Do we have a vendor that does that? Yeah, let me see. Okay, yeah, I'm going to buy that. Uh, like I said, especially the CBD and other uh, products in that world. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, um, not only can you become a member, the other thing you can do, you're online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you today, but just your friendly reminder. It doesn't take but a couple extra seconds. Go to tspaz.com before you shop online, whenever you're going to shop online. You know, check out my reviews. You can see everything there, itemized by uh, alphabetic by cat category, and see if there's anything I've reviewed that's what you're looking for. If not, as long as you start there, you still help us out. With that, have a great weekend. Be an architect of your own future. I'll catch you Monday. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. 
Show you a better way. 